0: of the way I learned, but there are many interesting things that I learned. One interesting online platform uploads them, and here's one. Um, so one of the psukim that I want to look at is the Pasuk Bahotib Kebalayla, the second Pasuk Eicha, right? She shall cry at night. Um, and her, her tear is on her cheek. Right. She has no, um, <coughs> excuse me, she has no one to comfort her from all of her lovers um korea baghduba right everybody has betrayed her and become her enemy um and he said he and reads it this way Balila, right what does it mean that she she cries at night different people read a different way right a lot a lot of the commentators say well crying at night right I forget who actually said this right? people cry during the day because they want attention right that they like there's there's a form of crying which is a little bit performative which is looking for for some sort of response from other people and crying at night is when you cry when you don't want something from other people you're just miserable um but he says right, right she starts to cry when she's done with her day's work because her day's work is terrible right she's sort of this is the post-destruction situation and she's really suffering right and it's not like she has time to sit around all day i mean some of the descriptions i think for me sound like people are sitting around all day just because there's there's literally nothing there. you know like they're their livelihoods have been taken away. But here, you know, she's, she's suffering. Maybe she's been enslaved, something like that. During the day, she doesn't have time to sit and cry. So that's when right? Her tear is on her cheek. He sort of bifurcates the pasuk. she shall cry at night, right? The is during the day, her her cheek is on her, tear is on her cheek during the day. Um, and I thought that was kind of evocative in terms of what Tishabav is also, right? Tishabhav is this time where we force ourselves to make this space, right? It's like the nighttime almost. The afternoon of Tishabav less so because you could do more stuff. Um, we force ourselves to sort of make this space for like ruminating about bad things, right? We're not we're sort of not busy. I think that one of the tendencies of modern Tishabhav is to make ourselves busy to avoid these uncomfortable thoughts, but that there is something happening there. Um, <clears throat> that like there's, there's, there's something, there's something about Tisha B'av as an opportunity to kind of like sit with unpleasant or uncomfortable things. And I, I don't know that I'm, I don't know what this exploration is going to lead to for all of us, but I think that's just something I hope we can all think about in terms of what is, what is Tisha B'Av? Tisha B'av is the time when you sort of, don't have these distractions, right? The crying of Tisha B'av is the crying of like, you don't have the ordinary distractions, and now you're sort of trying to, to figure out what what is what to make of your situation. Um, so with that sort of as a background, I wanted to ask us to look briefly at the first chapter of Echa, which is um, echa Aleph, it's the first two pages of the source sheet. Um, I personally, rereading Echa last night it struck me more than maybe in the past, maybe because I was thinking about this, that the first chapter of Echa really is a little different than the others. It's, it's sort of the iconic one that I think many of us think about. Maybe that's when we're still paying attention at night, I don't know. Um, but I think that, that there's other reasons also The the perspective of it feels more raw in some ways than some of the other chapters, which are trying to sort of take a bigger picture step back. Um, So I wanted to focus there. um, And I wanted to just ask us maybe to just sort of look it over for a a minute or two and sort of let me know what you see in terms of, for example, any structural elements of the chapter. Does it divide neatly into different parts? What's it? Yeah, I think that's sort of the big question. Does a chapter divide neatly into parts and does it have some sort of internal structure and how does that, what does that mean to you? How does that, how does that work for you? Um, So I know not everybody can talk, but can people put things in chat to Kayla or should I just not assume that that's a real
1: thing? People who are attendees should be able to ask questions to ask questions in chat, although they will ask it to everyone as opposed to just like you directly.
0: It doesn't have to be a question, it could be a comment. Um, somebody raised their hand as an attendee, actually. We can allow her to talk.
1: Miriam, you Hi. should be able to. Uh, Miriam, can you ask, unmute yourself and ask? The chat is disabled for attendees at the moment. Oh, then I'm, I'm sorry. I spoke. Then uh, let me get that uh, re-enabled.
0: Right. Although if there is a way to raise your hand and talk like I'm just I'm just did then maybe that's OK. Um, um, all right. Um, <laughs> um,
1: OK, people should people who are want our attendees should be able to um,
0: chat. I'm just going to give me one second. I'm going to turn on my air conditioner, which I meant to do before, um, and then I'm going to come back. and We'll talk a little bit about chapter one
1: and for people who just joined in um sheets are um let me reshare those sheets in chat uh, yeah marilyn uh see your hands up you can yep. feel free to ask a question and unmute yourself
0: go ahead Do you want
1: Marilyn? Marilyn
0: Brooklyn? Maybe it makes sense to just read a little bit together. Um, so we start with Echayet right? How low, how whatever. Alas, she sits in solitude, of the city that was great with people. Um, who's speaking, probably? It's unclear, I think. Who does it say? I mean, I don't know. How would we describe who's speaking? People who are attendees who want to join as panelists, then you'll have an easier time talking.
1: Um. Jason, yeah. Uh, um, I'm assuming Yirmiyahu, or like maybe some personification, (coughs) or or maybe like an outside observer because he's describing what's happening to Israel.
0: Right. So it definitely seems to be a third party observer, and I think we can wonder: is it right if we identify the author of Eicha with Yirmiyahu? Is this Yirmiyahu's voice, or is it just some sort of neutral third party voice? but that voice seems to continue, right? And it describes in this alphabetical order, right? She sits alone and she cries. Um, Judah was exiled, right? In Gimel her ways are all um, mourning. Hayut Roche, right? Her enemies have become the lead. Does that perspective shift anywhere? I'm going to pick up right Right, Jerusalem has sin still in verse 8 right she's still it's still a third party describing her and this third party also doesn't have it's a little detached right it doesn't have trouble saying like this is happening to Jerusalem because of its sins right and Jerusalem by the way is singular here to a large degree um all those who honored her like sort of start to put her down tomaktapa Shulah write her her impurities at the, her skirts loza we'll come back to that that's the source of the title of this talk um, right Yado yeah, excuse me right the enemy has sort of stretched out his hand against her al all her sort of like most wonderful things um, all her treasures right um. All our people are sighing. Kol aman enachim, right? It's the same voice, and here it's about to switch. Right, the first half of what the what the what what do they call them? The scholars, they'll call it eleven A, right? Eleven little italicized A, so like you know, one through eleven A, right? Kol aman enachim, everybody is sighing, right? And then in the second half, after the enachtah, rei hashem ba'bita, look God, and look, right? Ki hayiti zolila. Right That I have become what a glut, right, um, and then the speaker right the the first person speaker, the first person singular speaker, right says it shouldn't happen to you, everybody who's looking, right, if there is a pain like my pain, um, and it it continues in this first person' singular voice, so that's just like I think the the first thing to notice. Um, And it happens like, it's weird that it happens a little bit in the middle of one verse, right? It sort of, it just shifts like that in the middle of this verse, and then it just continues as if it didn't happen at all. Um, And if we notice, and this may be a key, and I'm doing, this is based on Ziegler's work that came out last year, which was super interesting. Um, But I think others have noticed this also, right? If you look at, um, if you look at this verse of, um, sorry. If you look at this in verse 11, right? Re v'habita, right? Look and see. Um, excuse me. Habitu r'u, right? If you look at the next verse, Re Hashem v'habita, ke z'alala, lo elechem khalo v'erdechazata habitu r'u, Then you should look and see, right? The same phrase, um, the same, or not exactly the same phrase, re, habita versus habita, ru, look and see versus see and look, you could say, appears in verses 11 and 12. And that actually can be a key that there, if you want to, you can find a little bit of a chiastic structure throughout the whole chapter that turns at this moment, right? At this moment where we switch from one perspective to the other. Um, <clears throat> Dr. Ziegler suggests that the, the first chapter is more, clin- the first half is more clinical and the second is more emotionally intense. I'm not 100% convinced by that, but you could be. Um, but there there does seem to be a difference in terms of, for example, like the degree to which fault is ascribed more easily in the first and the third person chance than the person suffering has a harder time attributing fault to themselves for their own suffering. Um, we could go through the whole thing, but I think I'm not sure it's like so. Maybe that's like a homework assignment um, with or without her book. You can look at it, I'll just do a few examples, right? Um, in chapter, in verse one, right, right, the last verse in the chapter says, um, for my transgressions are, sorry, my groans are many, right? So you have rabati and rabot. In the next verse, too, you have, sorry, right? Um, There's no one to comfort her. And then in verse 21, sort of one back, you have a menachem, right? There's no one to comfort me. And that's sort of like a very, a clear example of the third person description and the first person description really paralleling each other. You can build that up for the whole thing, Um, which I think is interesting literarily. But what I I really think it's interesting is, or does for us, is it can do something a little bit. like, what does it do to us to do that, to shift the perspective and to have the parrot kind of fold back over on itself in some way, right? Like at this moment, it switches from a third person talking about the losses in Jerusalem to Jerusalem talking about herself as a person, right? And sort of like re- recapping all the same things or the same kind of words, taking all the same boxes, but in the opposite direction. Anyone have any observations or thoughts about that. panelists are free to just talk and others are not. I know it's just about afternoon and it might not be the best time to ask people to talk, so I'm sorry. (coughs) Um, It it seemed to me that um, part of, so Dr. Siegel actually connected this to a a Mishnah, which is, I thought it was very interesting. Um, There's a Mishnah that sort of discusses three different types of prophets. It's not an associate, right? Some prophets sort of like, the prophet's role is to mediate between God and man. Um, right? And some prophets are sort of much more invested in the God part of their job, and some are much more invested in the Israel-specific part of their job, and some can balance both. Um, So for example, Elijah is considered the prophet who was like very, very invested in God and not so invested in Israel, right? Which comes out in his stories, right? He's like a zealot for God. He does not mind killing Israel or bringing famine on them to prove that God is correct, right? Um, Whereas Jonah might be the opposite because he doesn't sort of well, the way the rabbis read it, he doesn't want to bring um, repentance to the enemies of Israel, let's say. Um, and Yermiyahu, who is the punitive author of Echa, is the one who's supposed to balance both, who sort of takes both perspectives. Where is this midrash? This is in a Mishnah. It's not on the sheet. Um, I believe it's in a Mishnah. I'll find it for you in a minute while I'm talking. Um, right? That, like, if. Uh, that didn't work at all. Um, if Yirmiyahu is the one where, um, no, Yirmiyahu is the one who sort of like is supposed to balance both, and here he's doing that, right? In his, in that his icha that he writes is capturing both voices, right? The sort of the the third party voice, which maybe is God talking about Israel, maybe not, and the voice of Israel itself. Motion um, is <clears throat> Sorry, I'm gonna have to look it up in a little bit. Uh, um yeah sorry um but that there's i think there is something there about the collapsing of perspectives as sort of like the what the prophet does sorry it's in a machilta. um oh is it i don't know um yeah but there's something about like this chapter is kind of capturing that like the prophet has done his job right he's kind of like he's he's able to bring out the same problem from multiple perspectives um, using kind of the same words but also slightly different feelings let's say and i think that idea of like a little bit of a collapse um i guess that's that's sort of the main thing i want to say maybe is that in echa and in reading of echa within echa itself and then within the way we read echa we end up bringing a lot of things into the same point right we bring the perspective of the third party observer and the perspective of um, Jerusalem herself, let's say, although some people will see, maybe they don't see it as Jerusalem as the speaker in the second half, but I, to me that seems like the shot is that it's the the sort of the, the victim itself is speaking about how much they have been put upon, right? That sort of to bring those two perspectives together. And that, that kind of ability to collapse is what's going to lead to the ability to bring a bunch of other stuff to bring in everything that sort of all of Jewish history almost into Eicha, um as we'll see in a minute. Um, where is it? Um, so okay, so with that I want to go to the Pasuk that becomes this that became the source of this uh this text somewhat unwittingly of this sort, source of the title. Now the title kind of glosses over a very important feature of this um, of this pasuk. So um, we're going to pretend, we're going to erase the title of the talk from memory and actually look at the pasuk, which is this. So I will go back to um, sharing, <coughs> um, which is on, um, so I'm going to go back to source two, right? Do people need me to share? Is that a good practice? I guess I can, um, I'll do it. Yeah, here it is, right? So then I'll make it bigger. So hopefully that will fill your screen. Don't need that. Okay, um, right. So here's our, well, actually this isn't our PASUK, our PASUK is further above, um, PASUK nine, right? Right, her impurity is at her skirts seemingly referring to some kind of like menstrual image how would we translate if I tear it I'm going to skip it for a second she went down sort of astonishing astonishingly a nice translation right nobody can can comfort her and right in medah feim here, I told I showed you that that was like one of the, the ways that you can see that there's a kaiastic structure. So it's not as clean as that because the same phrase appears elsewhere. But okay, um, look, God at my suffering because the enemy has magnified himself. Okay, how can we translate lo zahra acharitah? Right, I see Kayla making a face because there's something weird about this phrase. Right. Or maybe we can remember how how does it get translated in the title of this talk, for example. It translates it as she gave no thought to her future, right? But now that I'm saying that, think about like there's something weird happening there. Um, There's something weird happening there, which is like, yeah, something strange is, is happening with one of the words, the word zahra. Right Lo za zawa almost always means remember, right remembering usually happens to something in the past, right and akharita is her end, something that happens in the future, right so this translation that we have I, probably from JPS or something, um, what did I have up here? This would be the JPS also. Um, she was not mindful of her end, right they also they, they translate a little differently. I don't know where they gave, she gave no thought to her future came from, but um you basically have to do something with one of those two words, or maybe both to make this Pasuk make sense. Because usually you can't remember a thing that happens in the future. Okay, um, But I think that what the commentators do, do with that is going to be maybe a little instructive for us. So Rashi says, and he doesn't tell you that this is his problem. This is a, a great like, what's Rashi's question moment, right? Because he says, ha They wouldn't pay attention to what would happen at the end, right? What has he done? He said, remembering doesn't really mean like remembering literally, I'm gonna use a different idiomatic word that's very close to remembering, pay attention. And then it's all gonna make sense because pay attention doesn't have the same time valence. Right, you can pay attention to the future and the past and that's fine and the present and whatever it is, they just weren't thinking about it. So that that sort of solves that problem by by taking away the edge of the word zahra, not really translating as it's usually translated. Shadal goes a step further. He doesn't just sort of like, you know, um, like Rashi just kind of pretends that it's not the word Zahra and says something else. But <coughs> Sadal says, this is actually on the on the Pastuk which is interesting in its own way, right? He says, Zakhira is not specific to the past, right? Actually, memory can happen, can apply to the future. And what's his proof? Lo right? She did not remember, right? So Jason may be correct that we do have an idiomatic way of saying, right that you don't remember what happens, right? That like, based on past experiences, you may have a way to predict the future. And I think that's where some of the commentators are gonna go, right? But I just wanna wanna notice that there is some, a little bit of a discontinuity there that has to be handled in some way, right? So one thing that you can do is kind of like gloss over the word zahra. Another thing you could do is gloss over maybe both words, which is a Ariyasef Kara, who's like a little bit of a younger contemporary Rashi does. Um, he says, lo sama aliba. So again, he translates zahra as to pay attention, right? And what is the thing that she didn't remember? Tohacha hanibi, right? He, he translates the word akharita, right? What does it mean, her end? Not the actual thing that would happen in the future, but the thing that people told her in the past would happen in the future, the past messages about the future. And so that solves the time discontinuity. Um, and in some ways, it does kind of, it, it, I think, I don't know, Jason, you can't say if this is true or not, but it does kind of, um, right, how would she know what happens to her after sin? Because somebody told her, right? So she forgot that somebody told her what was going to happen. So Rabbi Yosef Karak kind of like massages both words, I think. Um, and then he gets to this place. And the Midrash, um, the Midrash, I think, Midrash Lechechotov, which is a late Midrash, so like contemporary to the other, um, the two medievals here. Um, I believe so. She didn't remember her end. He says, like it, whatever it says. Listen, like Zachar has to be about the past, right? Zahar is always about the past. So what's the thing in the past? The thing in the past is not just the the you know the admonitions of the prophets, but the covenant itself, right? She didn't remember the covenant, and the covenant predicts what will happen during in the future. So you have to you have to put a lot of words into Akharita. Right, Akhrita is the future as the covenant and the future that it predicts. Okay, um, but I think that what um, I'm going to stop for a second sharing. I think that <coughs> excuse me. Part of what this, these different ways of reading this pasuk are. And by the way, right when when we say she gave no thought to her future, that's like the Rashi reading, right? She just sort of achritah is simply her future and that it's not being remembered per se. Um, This pasuk in some ways is like an example of how, just like the perspectives in the first chapter of Echa can collapse on each other, even like the time can collapse on each other, where you didn't remember what would happen in in the future. It doesn't really make sense, but yet when you say it this way, it kind of does. And it's capturing a lot of history in just those two words. You didn't remember all of the predictions and then uh, the when they did or didn't come true (coughs) and all the demands that you may or may not have ignored. Um, so the reason I wanted to begin with that pasuk is I think that first of all, here we have in Echa something about, right, it's on the one hand, it's very situated in the destruction of the first temple. But on the other hand, it's, it's opening for us the possibility that it actually sort of exists out of time. And this is how I think Jews have come to understand Echa thereafter, which is that this is the location for all of our suffering, or all of our bad historical trauma, we put it into Eicha. Um, and that's what I want to bring us to later is sort of how can, how do we read Eicha? Um, not just about the First Temple, which most of the people writing most of our post Eicha texts were not thinking about anymore, right? The rabbinic writers and the medieval writers are thinking about something different. They're thinking about their own tragedies and how do they sort of read those into them? What I'm trying to suggest is that Eicha is already a little bit asking us to do that by kind of opening up the possibility that the past and the future are, are a little bit less less sort of obviously ordered than we usually imagine. Um, oops. So I'm gonna take us first for in a minute. Um, yeah. Sorry, I'm gonna. I'm gonna I, I found the thing. It is. It is actually a midrash. So I'm gonna respond to um, to Jason from before, and I'm just gonna put a little. Which one is it? I'm gonna put a little link if you want. Um, this is from a the midrash that I mentioned about. I'm putting the quote because it's a long um, quote here. It's like a long passage so that you can control F it if you want. Um, but, oops. I'll share it with everyone because why not? Um there you have it. Um great. So I wanted to take us to this Pasuk, Al Illa which is like one of the most, I don't know, I think one of the most famous. It becomes um songs, right? Um <clears throat> there's some famous songs. I was I was debating whether I should sing them, but I definitely should not sing them now because I don't think I could sing today. Um Maybe at the end, if people will be welcome to, Al Eila Ani Right over these things, I cry, verse sixteen, um, and she says, Right, Al Eila Ani My eye, my eye, sheds tears, and right. So Dr. Ziegler says, like, look at this. You know, if this is a great example of the two different perspectives in the first chapter of Eicha, where like, you know, you have Pasuk Bet and Pasuk Tetzain, and they're actually like kind of different. Um, I'm not sure they're so different, but we can look at them in a second, right? So, for these my eyes, my eye, my eye sheds tears for the comforter to restore. My soul is removed from me. My children are desolate for the enemy has prevailed. Um, so maybe first we could just compare it a little bit to the third party perspective in Pasuk What do these two Pasukim have in common and not in common, let's say? <laughs>
1: The, uh, the detail of it being at night is in that, but not in, but not in the other play.
0: Right. And in so fact, it's possible, right, that there's no time, there's no time, like, limit to her crying in the second half. She's crying maybe a little more intensely. Yeah. There's something, there's a similarity. So in both of the English translations, they have this, this word, yay, which is, does not have an english right she's crying in both obviously right she's crying she's lost her right um she's been sort of betrayed by people or right the word oyeve appears like her crying is in contrast to the enemy right? the enemy is the cause of the crying and sort of indifferent to it they both begin right so why do they both have this weird english translation yay she weeps yay she weeps my eye yay my eye right that's some like somebody's archaic english my pa I'm blaming the translation as if I'm not the one who put it on the page, but whatever. I did put it on the page, I'll accept that, but that's an archaic English way of sort of acknowledging that you have this double language in both of them, right? The right. right, she shall surely cry is how it might often be translated, or my eye, my eye, right? So like, there's some kind of doubling, um, exactly what that might mean, we'll talk about it in a bit, right, but there's there's some feeling of excess in both to me Dr. Ziegler set thinks that verse 16 is more has more pathos. I don't know. Maybe. Um, mm. I think. I don't know.
1: You it's know, you also can. There's also the point of view difference um, in yeah. 16 and 2, um, first person versus third person.
0: Right, right. Because two is part of the first half, which is basically all in third person, and then this is after we've switched, right? But I guess I'm not, I'm, I don't fully see the difference in levels of pathos between those two halves, certainly not as exemplified by these two verses, but okay. Um, I think there's something about sort of like crying in excess that's appearing in both. And from the perspective of the readers, like of the Tanakh readers or rabbinic, rabbinic readers of Tanakh, one thing that's sort of suggestive, right? In both, whenever you have a doubling of language, you always, right? If you're ever looking for interesting midrashim, you sort of start to develop a sense of like, when is there gonna be an interesting midrash? This is a good clue. If there's gonna be a double language, somebody might say something interesting. Another interesting thing is the word ala, right? For these, because like, for which, right? What are the these (coughs) over which I cry? Um, Because in fact, she doesn't specify. So that's where I want to pick up. Um, So here we are, Ibn Qasbi just says, well, what is the this over which she cries? this is like a great shot answer. Well, all the other stuff in this chapter, right? Like I'm crying over all the stuff that I've just been describing and that I will continue to describe in this chapter. And that makes in some ways total sense. Um, And I'm not sure that anything more is required to actually explain the Bible, (laughs) excuse me. Um, But let's see what we can do. And I think part, part of like, the adventure in reading Eichaz, even if more isn't required, maybe more is possible. Right? Um, and I just, I'm gonna sort of build a little bit towards that. So Rashi says, "Ani ani," right? My eye, my eye. The the Targum actually says, my eye, my eye, meaning both eyes. I have two eyes, which is like, again, sort of a weirdly hyper-literal reading, um, but everyone's allowed to have their hyper-literalism. So I just thought I would mention it. Rashi says, "Ani ani Klamar, Tamid. Why did it say my eye, my eye? Because it's always happening. It's not just a one-time occurrence, right? My eye is always shedding, right? The double language teaches there are no interruptions. Um, And I think this Rashi is already a little bit suggestive, potentially, (coughs) excuse me, that, um, you guys really glad that you're not in this room with me now getting sick. Yes, Um, (laughs) whatever, I would not have done this in person with anyone, so all is well. so right, the double language kind of is a—it's a marker of intensity, but also interminability, right? That it keeps happening, and I think that's suggestive also of the fact that Eicha is something that we read, and it's supposed to keep happening, right? We're supposed to be able to sort of stretch it into our own timeline, just like Lozachorachritah kind of like collapses the timeline of everything—the future and the past. So here, right, the crying maybe never stopped even till now. Um, So the first thing I want to show is this midrash, um, which again, right, this is sort of building, I'm building step by step. I I cheated a little. I didn't put things totally in chronological order. So this is not like this development that I'm trying to chart here happened over historical time, the way I'm saying it. But I think each one sort of opens a little more. And I just want to notice each of those steps. So here's what says, I cry over these things. What are these things, right? Just as Yirmiyahu was Lamenting the korban of the, the destruction of the first temple, he lamented the destruction of the second temple, right? And how are we going to prove that? Because some in Echa, even he mentions Bat Edom. So even though the, the main villain or enemy of Echan of, of the first destruction is Bavel, he mentions Edom or Rome, who are going to be the destroyers of the second temple. And similarly, David um, sort of sees both. <laughs> and this already kind of is licensed to then use Eicha to talk about the destruction with which say the rabbis were more familiar, right, which is the destruction that happened very close to their own time, the destruction of the first temple, and then the various persecutions that happened after that, which is what's going to happen. Um, An interesting thing is that um, the Pew team seemed to draw heavily from the Midrash, Um, but there is this, you know, when you ask people, what are you allowed to learn, or when, what are you allowed to learn on Tisha B'av? One of the things is this passage from Gitin um, about the destruction of the temple, and so we have a little story here. This story appears—it's pretty—appears in a lot of places. It appears in the um, in the keynote, as we'll see in a minute. And we have this story, and right—it's going to open up a little further, right? So the first step is that the crying is interminable. At least the first conceptual stuff is, I want to pray the crying is interminable. Maybe even it's going on now, right? The crying can apply to different historical periods. It can apply to the first temple and the second temple, even though like the author of Echa actually really only lived through one of those things. Um, and now we're going to sort of like really apply it to the second temple. So here we have this story. Some of you may recognize it. Am Huda Marav. So it's an Emma statement. Ma'asebib no Bitosho Rabbi Ishmael bin Elisha, the son and daughter of Rabbi Ishmael, story regarding the son and daughter of Rabbi Ishmael ben Elisha, who was the high priest right? And they were taken captive by two different masters. Um, so first of all, I just want to pause and think about this, this way of introducing our characters. Why do we, first of all, they don't have names. We don't know anything about them other than who their father was, and that they're now taken captive. So what does that do for us? and I will say further, right, it's part of both here and later as I'll see, we'll see an excerpt from Echa but it's similar, it's part of a series of stories of, you know, so-and-so, the daughter of X famous person who was so fancy and then was so degraded in various different grotesque ways. Um, And that's sort of what's gonna happen here. Right, so they don't have a name, so a little depersonalized, as Jason says. Um, Yeah, I think it's also right, but their father does have a name. Because they're not nobody, right? And I think part of the point of the story is that they sort of what's what this sort of disruption of the destruction has done is taken the big name families and reduced them to nothing, right? All of these people who, like so and so's fancy daughter who never worked a day in her life and always they always spread out like, you know, carpets so her feet didn't have to touch the ground and whatever, all of these sort of like excessive stories of how special and fancy people were um the point of them is that then those people basically get erased that everything that you thought was important everybody who thought was like you know the the exemplars of your people have gone have been kind of like erased um and i think that in some ways telling the story of the children of somebody famous who are then themselves not going to have a future is a way of sort of dramatizing that right that like this destruction takes place in a thousand petty little places sort of like cuts off the future from a variety of different family lines. Um, okay, so they're, they're each are captured by a different, or enslaved by a different master. Right? So the two masters find themselves in one place. One's like, I have the most, most good-looking slave ever, and the other one's like, oh, so do I, right? They're both so beautiful, right? And this actually fits with the Rabbi Shmuel also having been thought of as beautiful in the martyrology. Um, so then the, the masters have this great idea, right? Well, maybe we should put them together and then they'll make beautiful slave children and we'll split them. <clears throat> so they put them in a room, right? There's no like weddings for slaves. There's just like a go make babies. So they put them in a room and each one sits in the corner. And interestingly, right? <laughs> um, and he says, right, I'm priest, the son of priests. How can I marry? a slave right it's not even like this is terrible I'm a slave right there's something about his own perspective that is both accepting but not sort of recognizes the gravity of his situation but also doesn't and I'm not sure whether to see it as noble right that he's not willing to accept somebody else's designation of him as a slave he's like no I'm a priest son of priests or a little bit like why do you think you're really better than her? Which is gonna be where the story ends, which is like, he's not actually better than her, Um, right? Like, it's not like somebody else actually deserves this more than him. But I mean, maybe it would have been normal to think that at his time, right? So he says like, how could I marry somebody so lowly? And she says, right, I have such lofty um, lineage, right? How could I marry somebody so lowly? And they are both crying in the corner. So, and there's different ways of telling the story, but basically here, they're both crying and presumably, right, they both assume that they know about the other person something, which is that, right? This other person is lower than me, but they must have some other reason for not wanting this. Right? Um, so when the, the, the uh, Amud Shahar comes out, the dawn, they see each other, right? Because it's dark, in the olden days, it's like very dark at night. So they can finally recognize each other. <sighs> and they fell on each other, and they hugged, and they died <sighs> crying, which is like an interesting, physiological question as to how that works but okay um <clears throat> right, so they, they they're sort of like this stylized story right they both have been brought down to this low fate and in some ways right related to what i was trying to say before right they have this lofty lineage their only chance to have children at all is in this very degraded way they don't do that and then they die right so this is sort of like the story of the end of this lineage right it's not I don't know if it's better or worse than ending in just like people being slaves and shipped off to Rome. It ends with them, like they don't have children at all. They just die, right? And about them Yirmiyahu said al Eila right? Regarding these, I weep, my eyes, my eyes run down with water, right? And I think this is a reading of "Ela." These, who is the these? These two people, right? And maybe that's related to the doubling, right? Ani, Ani, Ordamai might cry for both of them. Um, it's interesting to put Yirmiyahu as the author of Aleilani Bochia, which I think is not obvious that Yirmiyahu is the speaker for the second half. I think it's probably more likely that the speaker is the Israel personified. But here, right, Yirmiyahu is saying, I cry for these. Um, And interestingly, right, who was actually crying in the story? (coughs) Jerusalem. Right. Well, okay, Jerusalem is crying in Eicha. Who's crying in our story of the children of Rabbi Shemal Kuhin these as it were like the the children themselves right the children themselves are crying and Yirmiyahu's crying is like a sympathetic crying, right he's crying with them almost right he's sort of like they die crying and he's still crying now Yirmiyahu actually was not alive right when this happened if this happened right whatever he was not alive when this would have happened but the idea right that like sort of Rashi's idea of the interminable crying is that it, can, it sort of transcends time in some way and I think there's one more thing about these um, these stories that pick up on individuals, which is that they um this is a well-known thing in fundraising, right? Like I actually just got I just got a a pamphlet from a refugee aid organization, right? And they have like all these numbers, right? Like which are like, astounding numbers. You know, there's like seven inter seven million internally displaced people in like multiple countries right now. I mean there's like a hundred million something like that, like displaced, forcibly displaced people across the world right now. Like these astonishing numbers. And then they have like very big glossy pictures of people with names that are like, you know, our rescue boat picked up so-and-so off the coast of Liberia and like here she is holding her bait, right? And the reason people do that is that people don't give money to 10 million internally displaced people or whatever. And they give money to like so-and-so who got picked up off the boat Um, because people relate to individuals and their stories. That's just like a quirk of, this, I don't know if it's a quirk, it's a feature of our psyche, right, that we relate to stories, right, and in some ways, telling a story about how many million, or I don't know, million is probably too big, how many thousand Jews were shipped off into slavery and never to be heard from as Jews again, is very different than telling one story of one family that sort of met its end this way. Um, and then to say that the crying, right, the crying that who begins in the past sort of continues for them and continues for us who live after them. Through them, right, they cry about themselves, you mean and cry sympathetically about them, and maybe it's inviting us also to cry with them. <coughs> um, right, and I just I think that the um, the kina that's about these this brother and sister, which is Kina 23, kind of picks up on some of these themes when it says, yi yi right? So it seems to be following the, the Gitin version. I see there's something in the chat. Um, okay, thanks, Jason um right seems to be following the in version because it's saying Yirmiyahu is is um lamenting yeah, right in the direction right zot i all i perpetually weep this sort of um well it's an interesting way to, to actually question how to translate it this decree this this should be decree my apologies right this decree i weep constantly right <clears throat> So I, I think it's partly that you you weep the decree that was decreed against the Jewish people, but it's also, I feel a sense that there's a decree that you will weep constantly, that that's part of the suffering, is like this constant suffering with this constant sort of like mourning with no let-up, right? right? And it will be burned in my heart, right? Over son and daughter, I thunder, a great eulogy, I'll go down in sadness now I'll moan. Uh, <laughs> right, and there's is sort of interesting, I will go down and then I will raise my voice. Um, where I think right, the, the imagery again is sort of like, it's using, almost, it's using opposite imagery of going down and raising up. Um, and it's, it's pulling the crying sort of into the present day. Right, They cry, your cries about them, and we cry about them, um, right? We the sort of the author of this kina. And I think in some ways that's what reading Eicha is, or does, is it it takes, verses right like which are in some ways very fruitful and says so like what should we put in this verse this gets into also the question of right what how should you memorialize other tragedies in Jewish history right where like the the traditional response seems to be right you memorialize and you put them on Tisha B'Av also because Tisha B'Av is actually this day of eternal mourning right everything bad sort of collapses into here it's almost like an ahistorical time um and I think that that's that's, that this little example is an example of that much bigger phenomenon, but this particular verse I found interesting because I think it pushes even further. Which is this, <coughs> right? First of all, so here we have the targum ketubim. I actually don't know when that is written. Um, it seems possibly somewhat late. So, first of all, al ela It doesn't. It gives an example. It doesn't just say over these things. You know what came before and after, like even Kaspi, It says you know all these sort of like horrible things. You know like babies being smashed and other things. Um, that the, the, uh, the community of Israel cries. So first of all, it's not Yirmiyahu. I think this is more of a shot, right? That it's a, the, the speaker in this part of Echa is Israel or Batzion or something, right? As opposed to, for example, in other parts, one of the reasons that I think chapter one is, feels so personal is that in other parts, there are first person speakers, but they still speak about Batzion, right? This is the only place where it really feels like Batzion is speaking about herself um, to me. I know I just said only now somebody's gonna be like actually there's another verse I'm not saying there, there's no other verse but this seems to me to be the most extended period where it's like that um, right so we have for Yisrael says I cry and I cry over these specific things and um, this I think is also actually interestingly evocative what the, these these things about right the children being dashed and pregnant women being torn open and these sort of like gruesome images um, they do appear elsewhere these images like these are not the images that appear in the the parade of horribles that you get in Gitin or in Midrash Eicha about this pasuk but they do appear elsewhere um and I don't know if this is what the author of the Targum intended but I think it is also suggested which is this so there's a pasuk in um Malachim where Elisha comes to speak to the king of Aram I believe and he's crying and Chazael Chazael is not actually the king because I believe is like a general who's going to become the king something like that he says why are you crying And he says, I know what you're going to do to the children of Israel. You're going to do this thing. You're going to smash their children and dash open, rip open their women, right? Um, Which I think it's kind of interesting because it's almost like what the Targum has done, it has taken Elisha's crying and put it into also, Right, that like, <clears throat> I'm crying, I Batsion I'm crying, I Yirmiah, I'm crying, I'm crying about like what Alicia cried about in the past is now happening in the present. He cried about it then, we cry about it now, we can cry about it in the future, right? That it's sort of like stretching out and or collapsing the time horizon. in a way that, like, you know, remembering your future kind of suggests. <clears throat> but I think the most radical move comes from the Zohar. Well, I don't know if it comes from the Zohar. It appears in Eharaba, which is. It depends how old you think the Zohar is. Which one comes first? But I actually don't know how old Echarebe is. It's a good question. So um, <laughs> Zohar says it very explicitly. Ani <laughs> What does it mean? I cry. Da <laughs> ruach That is the Holy Spirit, ruach kodesh, which is called ani. And that we'll see. I don't know if I'm going to get into it. But the next passage from the Zohar also has like different different prepositions. Or pronouns are associated with the like, different sides of the cosmic good evil balance okay um so here right who's crying it's the it's god is crying and there's something on the one hand i think it's very radical to say that because like part of the whole point of <coughs> of eicha is that batzion feels abandoned right or the people speaking about her say she's abandoned and god is not answering her and right, she's sort of been left sort of shunted away I'm looking for a word that I'm missing, right? By God for her sins, right? But on the other hand, right? So this, instead of saying like, no God, like God is actually there, right? Which is a very sort of persistent piece of a certain kind of theology that God suffers with us. Even if it's true that God has pushed us aside and caused us to suffer because of our sins that God, that causes God suffering as well. So what does that mean? I'm crying, God is crying over them as well. Uh, right and in Rabba, there's there's a whole series of these stories that i mentioned one of them is a story of actually they actually are attributed to a different famous person but the son and the daughter of a famous person who then die in their arms crying other stories you know these very pampered women who end up eating their children god forbid all these horrible things right and it says after each one of them it has this line, and the holy spirit cries out and says i cry over these right which has brought our crying, not only from the past, not only sort of connecting to pre who people like Alicia who crying over his destruction and the destruction that he knows will happen in the future. And the people who experience that future destruction crying over themselves and their children and us crying over them, right? But also brings it even like outside of the, the sort of worldly plane up to God. God is also crying, right? That like, this is the day of crying at all times and places, right, in all planes, um, <clears throat> right? Um, the second Zohar, it's got, I'm going to read it, even though it's going to open up a can of worms, but um, this is my own translation. So if you're a Zohar expert and you think I made a mistake, please correct me. Um, but right, so it's going to make again a distinction between the Ruach HaKodesh and the sort of spirit of impurity. So the spirit of impurity, which is the evil serpent, which sort of is a, a theme, right? That there's like, this, there are forces of evil in the world in the theology of the Zohar that are always trying to get us, um, <clears throat> right? Um, and it has sort of a male and female sort of like lead evil guys um, and they they're called Ela, right um they're found in many facets in the world and Ruach Kodesh is called Zot which is the um the covenant like Zot Otabreed, Breed right this is the, the sign of the covenant right and you can find it with human beings at all times right and then it brings sort of examples right Zeh um or Zekeli, right, from the Shabbat Hayam, right, where you talk about God as Zeh, but Eila is a language of sort of bad stuff in the world. Forget the, the man and woman riding the serpent, like, whatever we can, you and I can explore together another time. I do not have intelligent things to say about it, but, right, the idea of sort of there's forces of evil, they're represented in some ways by Eila, the forces of good are represented by Zod, right, when you say Al Eila Ani right, it's not enough that we've transported God into the crying, it's actually giving, it's also transporting it into the cause, right? Ela right? Um, where is it? Ayla aloha israel, right? These are your gods. And there's a there's a similar midrash that connects it to Bahotip Kebalila, right? She shall surely cry at night. Well, this is like when the time that those Jews cried in the desert over the report of the spies, and now they're suffering about that forever, right? Um, so there's something about these sort of this tendency to like ascribe guilt let's say right that is actually like the ruach hakodesh is not just crying about the suffering of the jewish people it's crying about the jewish people's embrace of evil or of idolatry let's say which is something that maybe they can fix right um right that sin of will cause them many cryings but there is a possibility that they can be um they can be redeemed Um, right eventually that will be forgotten and i will not forgive you that's an interesting reading of this pasuk from me um that felt like a little bit i think i glossed over too much there but the basic idea right it's not just the kodesh is crying but the kodesh is crying over a spiritual loss not just a physical form of suffering and that those two things are actually collapsed right that like Again, just like the past and the future and the present and not many people's different presents are all contained in this one verse. And the perspective of the prophet or of the third party observer and of Zion herself are contained in the same chapter. And the perspective of sort of the sufferer where it feels pointless and also of God, where it feels like there's a reason for your suffering are also both contained in this pursuit, um, right? <clears throat> so does something very similar. Um, right, it's gonna on on our sort of first verse coming back to one two, um, not first verse, but our, our sort of companion verse. Tal elani or with the similar doubling we have with What um, What is the doubling of Keh mean? Galut aser shvatim and galut shevet yudavim mean. Right, so we have two different um, exiles that happen leading up to the time of Yirmiyahu. Right, the ten tribes and then the Judah and Benjamin. Right, or or maybe Ani bochia is umivaka akhirim, right? It's sort of an interesting grammatical reading, whether or not it's accurate that it's, right? Sorry, b'cho that she, she cries, yay, she cries, means she cries and causes others to cry, right? she is that she cries herself, b'cho means she causes others to cry, m'vaka'achirim, right? right? For example, who does she cause to cry with her? Kadosh right? She causes God to cry. Um, she causes the angels to cry. She causes... Um, right, he took him, sorry, it's an interesting connection, that's just trying to prove that this grammatical form of Baho can, can mean to cause somebody to do something, um, right? Um, right. So it causes God, causes the angel and causes like the physical world to cry with us or with her, um, right? And even the other nations, right? That there's something sort of like, even though right, the other nations in Eicha are, the enemy who are taking joy in our suffering to some degree, they're saying there's something, something fundamental has happened to the fabric of the world that actually this is a source of suffering or sort of lament for everyone. Um, And I think it's like a little bit evocative, Um, right? You know, Rashi sort of like tones it down, just like, you know, there's two, there's two destructions, right? Interestingly, right, all of these things could in theory be limited to the time that Yirmiyah was actually talking about which is the time of the first Korban. But Rashi is doing here what we saw exists above as well. Oh, I see I have two more minutes left, Oh, mistake. Okay, um, I'm gonna skip Rashi. So there's two things I wanted to leave you with. Maybe I'll just one. Um, one is, I'll, I'm gonna put this in the chat because it's super interesting. Um, I've lately, you know, Rabbi Lamb's sort of descendants, Rabbi Norman Lambs have been, have been trying to promote his work um, and they have a collection of his sermons from, many years online. This one is very interesting. It was from a Shabbat before Tisha um, in 1951, which if you could do math, is three years after the state of Israel was founded. And it was a very, very live question apparently for his congregation of like, should we still fast? What is this fast even about? um and he tries to explain why he thinks they should still fast and one of the things he gives this example which like I don't know if this is really true still in psychology but he says right what does a psychotherapist do if you lose something they make you go through in your mind all the places that you have it and the the location is revealed so it's similar to us right doing mourning this loss is more than mourning it's an excellent psychoanalysis because by recalling these traumatic events of 2000 years ago we can find the clue to where the keys the keys to the are right, that like this form of mourning is actually a way of excavating our own selves, right, what we're bringing to this moment, and I think, that, I mean, whatever, this is where I struggle, maybe others do also, right, what do we, who live relatively, many of us comfortable as, what do we bring to this moment of like collective trauma, um, right, but that like there's something about reliving it that can cause us to find that, um, so yeah, I encourage you to read that if you want, I always find these sermons to be like whether or not I agree with everything he's saying, they're like super, super interesting time capsules. Um, and especially this one, right? Because it's like, you know, I, to me, right? The question of like, well, what should we say on Tisha B'av now that we have the state of Israel is like, it's a formula because as long as I've been alive, we've been doing Tisha B'av this way, but like, and we've been asking this question then we have like an answer why really we should do it the way we've always done it. But like, it's very different than like actually in 1951 being like, well, is it going to change or not? It wasn't obvious that it wasn't going to change. Um, but I just want to end with the shla who is a medieval, I don't know, almost cabalist Kabbalist type thing. So he says, this is much Definition: over these I weep, my eyes, my eyes should water, right? That you should be crying over two things. You cry over your sins and over the destruction of the temple. And actually these things exist in like a recursive loop, right? Because if the temple were present, first of all, the world would be better, everybody would be righteous and we would have lived in this idyllic world. And also, right? You would be able to get atonement from the temple, right? Whereas now, we're sinful and we have no temple to recuperate to rehabilitate our sins. Um, so what are we supposed to do? Right? We're sort of caught in this loop. Um and then he suggests this. So he says, right, we have no repair except, and then he says this: Lyot to avoid evil. I put wrote to be avoid evil to capture his sort of like weird turn of phrase, he's quoting up a secret right? To avoid evil and do good, be lowly down to the dust, sanctify ourselves with whatever is possible our body should become a vessel to receive holiness since it's the image of the, of the mishkan, right? And there should not lack from its sacrifices. And here are some examples of his sacrifices, right? How do you sacrifice from your body? By fasting, right? How do you sacrifice with your speech? By speaking about the korbanot and their halachot. How do you sacrifice with crying? That crying is actually like misochamayim, right? Like the, um, the water libation. That's why I brought this here, because I thought it was so interesting, right? And, um, right, or to have a broken and downtrodden heart, which comes up in many places in the Gemara, um, including our prayer from the summer of Chaya, is still here. So, <coughs> um, there's something, right? He starts off with this sort of like very bleak description of, like, well, without the temple, we have sins and we don't have a temple and like we're just like they're building on each other you can never get out of this loop and then it's like but actually you can and one of the tools that you can is fasting and crying and if the crying itself is almost like a form of sacrifice and i think that that that's an, another way that cr- like right just as crying has sort of like collapsed different times and different places and different like heavenly and earthly planes here i'll end with this as sort of like it's like a little bit of a hopeful note right that it's not just like you're trapped in this infinite regress of tragedy, but that it's something that maybe can eventually as we sort of walk, come out of Tisha B'av, can can lead somewhere constructive perhaps. Um, so thank you for bearing with me and for uh, um, <clears throat> listening to my cough and I wish you a
1: meaningful and easy end of the best. All right, thank you, Ms. Goodweiser. Um, if anyone has future questions, um, um if anyone has questions for you, how can they get in touch?
0: Oh, um they can email my last name at Tricia. At That's fine. Right. I'll put it in the You should make sure you know you spell my name correctly because nobody ever does. Um And then uh Kayla just posted the source sheet again for those who asked. Um great. Thanks. Right.
1: And thank you next- very much. Thank you for coming. And our next class <laughs> will be starting in less than 15 minutes with uh, Rabbi Silberg. Great. Thank you. you. Bye everyone.